Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. This is KMTT, and this is Ezra Beck. And today is Heishvat Erev Shabbat Kodesh Pashat Bo. Today Heishvat is the yard site, the Yom Hazikaron of the Svat Emet. It's the hundred and first yard site of the Svat Emet. So I'd like to open with the comment of the Svat Emet on a on today's Pasha. The beginning of the Pasha, Kosh says to Moshe to go to Paro, Bo el Paro, Ki ani hichbati et libo, for I have hardened his heart. So the Svat has the following comment. He says, what is the message to the Jewish people from the fact that God says that Paro's resistance, Paro's evil, was a result of the fact that God made his heart hard, made his heart strong, made his heart heavy. But then it says, this tells you that, in fact, it's like that all the time. When we face our own inclinations, our own yetzahah, our own perceived inability to better ourselves, that strength, the strength of the evil, the strength of habit, the strength of, 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 of inability to correct our own ways, it's not because the evil within us is that strong. It's because God has made it strong. And that is good. That tells us that if you truly desire and make an effort to overcome the Yetzirah, to overcome your own habitual evil, your own habitual bad ways, then you can do that because it's not really that strong. The strength comes from God. But God is really on your side. God really wants you to be better. And therefore, if you truly desire then God's will is subject to your will. But at all times you should know that the, the apparent strength, people try to change things and they just feel they can't do it. Of course there's a tremendous strength there, but it's not the strength of the Yetzirah, it's the strength of God. And therefore if you appeal to God, if you appeal to yourself, if you do tshuva, you can truly overcome that and tshuva is therefore always, always possible. My guest for today's Erev Shabbat program is Halav Moshe Maris, who will also speak about today's Pasha. One of the times that Paro contemplates sending away B'nai Israel, he asks Moshe Rabbeinu who's going to go. To which Moshe Rabbeinu replies, everybody, us, the men, the women, our children, all our cattle, and to this, Paul responds. He says, Yehi chen Hashem imachem ka'asher ha'shalach eschem ve'estabchem ru'u ki ra'ah neged p'neichem. He says something that it's not only difficult to un- translate, but even when you translate, it's not so easy to understand. The translation I like the best for the first part of the Pasuk is Paul says to him something which is both sarcastic and which at the end of the day turns out to be ironic. The sarcasm, sarcasm is, he says, look, just, just as, as I'm, I'm not going to send you and your youngins, kids out, he so says, you, you and all your kids. Be with you. Now, the irony is, of course, that at the end of the day, he does send out the Bnei Israel, and at that moment, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is with the Jewish people. But nonetheless, what is this issue about HaKadosh Baruch Hu being with the Jewish people or not? Why is it that Paul would care whether or not Hashem is with the Jewish people? Does he believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Is he aware who he is? I mean, he starts off saying, I don't, I don't even know who Hashem is. 
Has that changed? Is there some sort of understanding that power is attained? And that's what he's saying to the Jewish people. That which you think is going to be is never going to be. The end of the Pasuk, the, power, the, the parish that I like about the end of the Pasuk, is not just that he's saying to Bnei Yisrael, look, it's all been discovered. I know your real intentions. You're going to try to flee. And that's the evil that's Negev Panechem. But it's more than that. It's that you're not going to be successful. He says, look, Moshe Rabbeinu, look. Look at that word, look. He wants Moshe Rabbeinu to see something. It's not going to work out. At the end of the day, it's going to be evil, not like you think. What is Paro talking about? Why does he care whether Nakodesh Baruch is with the Jewish people? And why does he want Moshe Rabbeinu to see that the end result is going to be evil? And what end result did Moshe Rabbeinu have in mind? I think the place to start to answer this question is with, is with understanding a little bit better Shem Hashem. I'm not so sure that Paro had the deepest understanding of Shem Hashem, but it could be that he understood some element of what was behind the Jewish people's relationship to Kodesh Baruch Hu. There's two aspects to the Shem Hashem, if you look at it grammatically even. One is, Hu Hayahu Hovehu Yiyeh. It kind of means that Kodesh Baruch Hu is the ever-present one. He's eternal. He existed all the way in eternity, all the way back from before the beginning of the world. He exists now, and he will continue to exist after the world no longer exists. Unlike us finite beings, he's infinite, he's transcendent, he's eternal. But there's another aspect of Shem Hashem. And that aspect comes from the verb lahoveh, to constitute. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one who's constantly constituting the world. He recreates the world at every moment. And as Rabbi Hirsch points out, that, this, that Shem Hashem is in third person singular plural. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one who makes sure that the world will always be constituted according to our needs, to our best educational needs. In other words, the transcendent God who is behind all of creation, He's also present in creation. He cares about creation. He interacts with creation, and He makes sure that it leads to what is best for mankind. What Paul is saying here to the Jewish people is that it's never going to happen. This God that you think exists, He's never going to be with you. Because why? How, does, how could a Kurdish Baruch Hu be with you? If I, Paul, send you away. If I let all of you go, but since I'm never going to let that happen, so that is going to demonstrate that the Kurdish Baruch Hu is not with you. And it will prevent that eventuality from ever happening, and that is something I won't let happen. But so what? Why does this bother Paro so much? What is the issue involved? Another way of asking this is why does Paro so stubbornly hang on to the Jewish people? Why is he willing to go to the very end, to the last Makkah? Why won't he ever give up before? And I know that Akadosh Baruch Hu hardens his heart, but the hardening of Akadosh Baruch Hu's heart is just a continuation of his stubbornness that he began. Or as some say, it's the, giving him the strength to give his Bechira to continue to choose to refuse to let B'nai Israel go. But why? Why so far? It could be that here is represented a fundamental machlokus between the nature of reality. And that's Ru'uki Ra Negev Panechem. You, the Jewish people, want to say that the world is in some ways fundamentally good. That a Kurdish Baruch who cares about us, that the Creator cares about us and is involved in our lives. He says, it's never going to be. 
even if it ever got to the point that I would send you all away, ra neged panechem. It's just going to turn out bad because that's the nature of reality. In other words, don't be so naive, Moshe Rabbeinu. Don't think that you can take a slave nation and take them to the desert and create some sort of fanciful ideological nation which has never ever existed based on some sort of notion of being an Am Kadosh Kohanim. It's just never going to happen. He says it's just going to be bad because that's the nature of reality. And I, Paro, can't allow you to start try because if you upset the fundamental understanding of the nature of reality, it's going to transform my whole society. It'll make all of Mitzrayim unstable. We have a social order. We have a reality by which things work. And I, as Paro, as the king, and as what he thought of even the god of Egypt, I can't let that happen. This this notion of, of a conflict of ideas, I think, is well captured in the... Rashi in the Midrash points out that Paro, the saint of Israel, that he and his astrology saw that it's going to end in blood. That B'nai Israel was going to end, have blood of the sword and that the whole project would end in ultimate failure. And this notion, this idea that Ra Neg Pnechem, that, the, that uh, there's some sort of star named Ra, which is predicting the future of B'nai Israel, is a ta'ana, a claim that both Moshe Rabbeinu and HaKadosh Baruch Hu take very seriously. And that's what the HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Moshe Rabbeinu said to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, according to the Midrash, right, at the Cheta Ego, he says, why would you go and destroy the Jewish people? Why should you let the Egyptians say that you took up B'nai Yisrael Bera, i.e. according to the prediction of the, astro- the astronomical prediction of Paro, according to the star Ra'ah? He says, you can't let that happen. And indeed, HaKadosh Baruch Hu agrees, that can happen. Aviva Zornberg on this Pasuk says that what's going on here is some sort of machlokus about the historical interpretation of what B'nai Yisrael are about. Paro has an interpretation of reality, and he's implying that interpretation of reality to the project of the Jewish people. He's saying it can't work. It can't work. You're not in tune with reality, Moshe. You're not in tune with the reality of what the ultimate nature of the world is, and therefore it's going to end in bloodshed. And I know that because I understand the astrological reality of the world. I understand the deeper nature of reality, and I see it's just going to fail. And this Moshe Rabbeinu says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Baruch says, you're right, I can't let that perspective win out. I can't let that ta'ana be strengthened, because the whole point, the whole, or at least one of the main points of, of Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim is to fundamentally undermine that view of the world. It's to go and change the perspective of reality of a cold, heartless place, a place where there's no you know, kedusha, no morality, where it's, where it's just destiny and fate and death. That perspective can't be allowed to win out. And in, however, we see that at, even at the Chet Ego, this machlokis still continued. And the Cherpa Mitzrayim, the, the embarrassment that B'nai would feel if they ultimately failed, that was not removed until they got to Eretz Yisrael and all B'nai Yisrael were circumcised. What, what is this embarrassment? It's that, that all through the, 40, through the whole 40 years, B'nai Yisrael risked, B'nai Yisrael risked being, um, so long as the Jewish people had the threat of ultimate failure, of total destruction, 
the Ta'ana, the perspective of the Mitzrim, of the, of the Egyptians, still had a, a voice in the world. The second that B'nai Yisrael made it to Eretz Yisrael, and they circumcised themselves, they showed that the blood that the Egyptians saw was not the right, not the blood that they thought it was going to be. It wasn't the blood of blood, the blood of bloodshed. It was the blood of circumcision. And that moment, the, the perspective of the Egyptians was fundamentally undermined. But what's interesting here is that this whole machlokas somehow or another seems to revolve around blood. I mean, after all, have you ever noticed that blood keeps appearing in the story of the Exodus? After all, have you ever noticed that blood keeps reappearing in the story of Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim? HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Moshe Rabbeinu, if they don't believe the first two signs that I've given you, take some water and turn it into blood. It's not the same blood of the Makkah, of the Makkah Mitzrayim, of the first Makkah. It's some sort of symbol that the Jewish people are supposed to understand HaKadosh Baruch Hu has sent Moshe Rabbeinu. And there's, and Sipura says, you're Chatam Damim, then Chatam Damim the Mulot, and she circumcises her son. And of course, there is the first Makkah of blood, and there's the blood of the Karim Pesach, and even in the Midrash, you have Paro killing Jewish you know, babies, Lo'olenu, and, and bathing in the blood. I mean, blood is everywhere. And what is this? I mean, note that, that somehow they're the same act of turning water into blood symbolizes something radically different for the Jewish people than it symbolizes for the Egyptians. For the Egyptians, it's denying their God. It's striking at the heart of their society. For the Jewish people, somehow it's a sign of redemption, of hope. And maybe the two of them are obviously related, but it's, it's interesting to know that this idea of the two relationships of blood come throughout the story. Chatam Dam and Chatam Dam and Mulot, two types of blood. There's the blood before the baby is in danger and the blood after the baby. The, I mean, the blood is the blood when the baby's in danger and the blood after the baby's in danger. And there's the blood of, of Ra Neged uh, Penechem, and there's the blood of circumcision. What is this element of blood? Throughout all of Chumash, Shvichas Damim represents bloodshed. Murder. The blood is the life you know, of, of the animal and we can't eat it. And we take blood and we put it on the Mizbeach as the Ramban points out, is some sort of, you know, you know, replacement for us who really, in some way or another, deserve our blood to be shed. You know, shechting, pouring out blood is always somehow or another a symbol of death. And yet, we have in the current Pesach, and we have in in the circumcision, we have b'damay chayich. We live through our blood. It's a contradiction. It's it's it just doesn't work according to the way of the world. And this is the whole point. That somehow or the Jewish people are able to take death itself. After all, what greater symbol of death can you have than taking a knife to the male reproductive organ? That symbolizes a threat to the, to the future generations which have yet to be born. And spilling blood in itself, as I said, is a symbol of, of, of murder, of killing. And yet somehow or another through this, the Jewish people are able to transform, transcend what should be the normal outcome of shedding blood and bring about a new history. This is none other than the story of Ein Mazel Yisrael. However you understand that, that B'nai Yisrael, the whole story of B'nai Yisrael confronting Mitzrayim is the story of transcending destiny, of transcending history. After all, how can a slave nation hope to go and take on uh, the empire of Egypt. 
Right? What hope do they have? What resources do they have? What precedence do they have that they'll be successful? But that is indeed the message of the burning bush. That B'nai Yisrael, that, who are the, are the bush, and Egypt, which is the fire, Kodesh Baruch says, I'm with you within the bush. And you can transcend it, you can survive it, you won't be consumed. And this is the message about what reality really is. That at the end of the day, no matter how it appears, even though Paul can say with all conviction that, look, evil is the nature of reality. For those who understand the Jewish people, who understand, they understand even that which seems to be evil has within it an element of a Kodesh Baruch that He is one, He created everything, including death, including evil, including the fires of Mitzrayim, but that since He is imminent in all of those elements, and since, as the Shem Hashem implies, He says, ultimately speaking, even those things which seem to be us to give the greatest ta'ana to Egypt can be transformed and transcended into yet another way to actualize the divine plan for mankind. And so therefore, blood itself had to be transformed. Death itself, which the Mitzrayim so understood and worshipped, had to be transformed into a symbol of life. And the Jewish people did that when they entered um, uh, the, the Holy Land of Israel. They did that by mass circumcision. And instead of mass destruction through death, there's mass dedication to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and mass awareness that He is one and that he, His presence that fills the whole world, and that is indeed the world at its essence is good and not bad. Good Shabbos. You have been listening to Avav Moshe Morris speaking about Pashat Bo. On the Pasuk that I mentioned in the beginning, Bo el Paro libo, the Chida has a comment that's actually very similar to the comment of the Svatemet that I mentioned in the beginning, not in terms of the philosophy that goes behind it, but in terms of its practical ramifications. Rashi, on the Pasuk, Bo el Paro, Ki ani libo. What is Moshe supposed to do? God says to Moshe, go to Paro, and then doesn't tell him what to do there. So Rashi explains, what should he do? Vihitrabo, and, and warn him. Uh, warn is the, wrong, is the wrong word. It really means to admonish. There's a halacha that if a person is going to do a transgression, so he doesn't get a punishment unless he has had hatra'ah beforehand. The two witnesses who are going to see him doing it have to say to him, don't do this, because if you do this, you'll get the following punishment. That's called hatra'ah. It's a, a, a warning of the seriousness of what you're about to do. Um, so, bo'el paro, Rashi says, v'hitrabo. Give him a warning. So, the chida asks, but the continuation of the Pasuk says that the reason why you should go is because ki ani because I have hardened his heart. If God has hardened Paro's heart, why should Moshe give him a warning? It won't have any effect anyhow. The only reason why you warn somebody before he does a transgression, before he commits a transgression, is in the hope that he will back down, repent, and not do it. But Paro, God has promised Moshe that it won't make any difference. So why does he have to warn him? If the purpose of going to Paro was to tell him to send the Jews out, he has to tell him at some point that that's what he's coming to do. But to tell him that if he doesn't listen to God, he'll be punished, is, is irrelevant. Even halachically it's irrelevant. There's no point in doing hatra'ah if the person doesn't have the ability to pay, to pay attention. So the Chida's answer is that 
of necessity, you have to conclude that Paro could do tshuva. This relates to, I believe, the topic of last week's, not this week's, but last week's shiur in Pashat HaShavuot, the Pashat Ve'eva, of David Silverberg spoke about the notion of Anihichbat the Etlibo. What does it mean that God said he's hard in his heart? Does Paro have free will, does not have free will? Anyhow, the Chida assumed that, yes, you, you can prove from this Vashi that he must have had free will, for else there would be no purpose in doing the Hatra. And that, he says, is exactly the meaning of the Pasuk. It's not merely what I'm saying, it's what the Pasuk means. Warn him, ki, because, and the Pasuk comes to tell us that even someone whose heart is hardened by God, supernaturally, he can always do tshuva. And that's why God said to Moshe Rabbeinu to go, because ki, for, it means, it doesn't mean despite, but it means precisely because. Precisely because I've hardened his heart, go give him an extra warning, because he can still do tshuva, he can still repent, and that is precisely the point that God wishes to teach B'nai Yisrael, which is to teach Moshe Rabbeinu, which is to teach those who will learn from what happens. And Moshe Rabbeinu keeps going back to Paro each time with a new plague and a new warning. And why is God investing so much effort and time and Moshe Rabbeinu investing so much effort and time in this endeavor with Paro? Because it's to teach us that no matter how hard one's heart appears to be or how hard the difficulty of changing one's way of action, of true repentance, would appear to be, tshuva is always possible. Why then did God make Paro's heart hot, hard? Why did he make his heart hard? Uh, indeed, to make it harder for him to do tshuva. No question about it. God was making it more difficult for Paro to do tshuva, but he could still do tshuva. It was still within his power because human being has bechirach of shit, has, has free will. I think a proof to this idea would be the way the Pasuk continues. I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Why do we care about the heart of his servants? If it means, as we assume it means, that God has taken away Paro's free will, and if we recall that Paro is a total autocrat, Paro is a dictator, if Paro's heart is so hard that he will not let out the Jews, the Jews will not leave. It doesn't make a difference whether his servants are being broken by the plagues or not. Because Paro will refuse. And Paro's word is absolutely, absolutely law. In fact, we find that later on, at different points, his servants did break before him. And they pleaded with him, let the people go, let the people go. And the end, Paro said no, because Paro has the last word. But if the Chidah is correct, that Paro has free will, and the Hichbati et Libo is to create a situation where there is more for his free will to, to contend with, then that's really a factor. Not only is Paro's natural inclination, as God has arranged, against the Jews and against giving in to Moshe's demands, but in fact the advice that he'll get from his advisors and from the people surrounding him is also against it. So therefore, the, the tshuva, the hurei tshuva, the, the, the thought that perhaps he should do that which is right, encounters more resistance both in his own heart and in the hearts of others. If we're talking about the psychological contention between his Yetzer Tov and his Yetzer Hava, then his advisors and friends and family and surroundings is indeed a factor in what was God's will here to make it more difficult, to make it more contentious, to require a greater effort on his part to do the right thing. To this, the Chida adds, and even so, even though his heart was hard and the heart of his servants was hard, 
Nonetheless, you should go and be matre. You should go and warn him. You should go and give him a warning and admonish him because there's still the possibility of his doing tshuva exists. And this is indeed a lesson for all of us for all time. Today's Halacha Yomit, we are continuing from yesterday. We said yesterday that Kriyat has a time from about an hour before sunrise until the end of the third hour. According to almost all we've shown him, this is its time, Midioraita. It says, B'shach b'cha u'v'kumecha, b'kumecha, when you are getting up, the time when people arise. And the Gemara says that uh, the time that we're passing, Rabbi Yeshua, till the third hour, is because B'nei Malachim, aristocrats, get up a little bit later, but they don't get up later than, than the third hour. However, the Kesef Mishnah argues, based on his reading of the Rambam, that Midiorita, Zman Kriyachma is all day. Say Kriyachma twice, once during all day and once during all night. And uh, there are a number of uh, Achronim who, who agree with this, uh, with this shita, with this, with this interpretation of, of the Rambam. There'll be an Afkamina, uh, we mentioned yesterday, that anything that's Diorita, so if you have a Suffolk, you have to do it again. So since Midiorita, Kriyachma, is all day, only Midiorabanan, it has to be said before the end of the third hour. So that would affect the cases of, of Suffolk, questions of, um, of, of doubt. Now, the Magen Avram asks on this Shita, how could it be? The Gemara says in Bachas Tavchaf Amidbet, that women are exempt from Kriyachma because it's mitzvah tasei shazman grama. So all Rishonim interpret, the normal interpretation is, Kriyachma has a given time. The time is till the third hour. And therefore, it's a mitzvah tasei shazman grama. It's a time-dependent mitzvah which women are exempt. But according to the Kesem Mishnah, Midiorita, Kriyachma is all day. There is no time when one is not chayv in Kriyachma. And since Midiorita, it's, it's not a mitzvah tasei man grama, so women therefore are, should be chayavot. And therefore, midrabanan, they'll be chayavot as well, they'll be obligated as well. The answer that the Achronim give to this question is that even though Kriyachma is said all day, but there are two separate mitzvot. There's one mitzvah to say Kriyachma when you're awake, and that's all daytime long. And there's a different mitzvah to say the same pasha, to say Kriyachma at night. But the mitzvah at night cannot be said at day, and mitzvah at day cannot be said at night. So therefore there are two different mitzvot, both of which are Hazman Grama, both of which are time dependent. It's an interesting concept. It's not immediately apparent that it's that it's really true. The fact is that you have to say Kriyachma, it's true twice a day, but you have all the time to say it twice a day. And the question is also a technical one. Is it in fact two separate mitzvot? The Raman, for instance, in Sefer Mitzvot, doesn't count it as two separate mitzvot, although, for instance, he does count Tefillin as two separate mitzvot. There's one mitzvah to put on Tefillin Shel Rosh, and another mitzvah to put on Tefillin Shel Yad. The Ramban, in his uh, comments to the Sefer Mitzvot, questions this discrepancy. If the Ramam counts Tefillin as two, then why doesn't he count Kriyachma as two? You can think of answers. The answer isn't so, much, isn't so important as the fact that the Ramam, in fact, does not count Kriyachma as being two separate, as two separate mitzvot. Now, that might not be relevant to our question. It might be a technicality, how you count mitzvot. It could be even though we count it as one mitzvah in terms of the 613 list, 
But nonetheless, it's two separate, you could call it two separate kiyumim, two separate fulfillments. And you don't sum it up by saying what is chayat to say kriyachma all the time, once in the morning, once at night. But you have to say Kriyachma in the morning or during the day. And you also Chayev, you also obligate to say it at night. So this is the answer that's given in order to defend the opinion of the Kesa Mishnah. In fact, uh, most Achonim do not accept the, the opinion of the Kesa Mishnah, and most Rishonim for sure uh, do not hold the way, even if the Ramam does hold that way, which isn't clear either. Um, and therefore, maybe the defense isn't necessary. However, aside from the Halacha itself, it's an interesting point that is, do we view Kriyachma as being two separate mitzvot, each one of which has a time, that might even affect conceptually. It means that would mean that there somehow should be a difference between the way you say Kriyachma by day and the way you say by night. I don't mean there should be a practical difference, but it might, in terms of the conception, the philosophy behind it, there might be a difference to affirming God in daytime and affirming God at nighttime. This would seem to be uh, expressed by the Bechot, which accompany Kriyachma, which in fact are different. The Bekot Kriyat Shacharit and the Bekot Kriyat at night have a different aspect. The way it's usually explained is at night time, time of exile, time of darkness, a time when we don't, we don't see our way in the world. So Shema Yisrael, the acceptance of God is more of Emunah. I, I, I know God is there. I, I believe in God despite the night. In daytime, uh, we see where we're going. We... We more or less feel God's hand. We don't have the same fear of the unknown. And therefore the affirmation is calmer, more philosophic, more an affirmation of the truth, and less an affirmation of, of dependence upon, upon God. If this philosophic idea is correct, it might have a halachic reflection. And in fact, these are, two separate, these are two separate mitzvot. And that's it for today. After I finish talking, you'll be able to listen to the Nigun for this week. You did Nefesh, the Babava, you did Nefesh. We'll be back next week for the sixth week of the KMTT. Monday Shur will be the regular weekly Shur of Havav Khan in Hilchot Pachot. Until then, wishing you a Shabbat Shalom. This is Ezra Beck in Gush Etzion at Yeshivat Haretzion. Kol Tov, you've been listening to KMTT. כי מציון תצאי תורה ודבר השם ירושלים.